You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On this podcast, my producer, Grant Stern, interviews David Pluff, President Barack Obama's former campaign manager, about the 2020 election and his new book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. This is a must-listen interview for anyone who cares about beating Donald Trump in 2020, which is probably most of you, and removing him from the White House as soon as possible from the guy who helped take back the presidency in 2008 and win Obama's re-election in 2012. A crucial task that I'm proud to have held a small part performing in a big machine. We asked David all about his blueprint for the resistance to counter online disinformation, person-to-person organizing, and even got him to preview President Obama's plans to help mobilize Democrats in November. This is a great interview that runs the gamut from his first meeting with Obama to his detailed breakdown of Florida, always a key swing state in presidential politics, obviously. Please take a listen to our Dworkin Report interview with David Plouffe. I'm here with David Plouffe, and he's President Obama's former campaign manager, as well as the author of a new book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. He's been on the PBS NewsHour, The Daily Show, and Pod Save America, but he's making his Dworkin Report debut today. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. It is my distinct pleasure. Um, you know, I'd really like to start by kind of going back to the end of the beginning of your political career and ask you a question about when you first met President Obama. What were your first impressions of Barack Obama when you met him before guiding his campaign to the White House? Well, I first met him at the end of 2002. He was an Illinois state senator, and we had breakfast uh, to talk about his U.S. Senate campaign, which was just beginning. He'd have a primary where he was a decided underdog. And, you know, I was impressed right away. I've I've met maybe thousands of uh, political candidates through the years, but his intellect and his humor immediately put you at ease. But, you know, the conversation we had was so remedial. I mean, he insisted on driving himself around the state, so... He wasn't able to make phone calls while I was in the car. Um, you know, he wasn't uh, spending enough time on the phone raising money and recruiting volunteers. So it was kind of a remedial discussion, honestly. So, of course, uh, that was at the end of 2002. So crazy to think 16 years later he was the president-elect of the United States. But it tells you how improbable the story was. Yeah, well, I, I think that a lot of people enter politics not ready to... Uh get into that routine right away, right? You know, making the calls and going through all the many, many intervening steps. Yeah, the thing that always got him excited, and this was true in his presidential campaigns, is the policy and, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, spending time raising money. And, you know, it's true for a lot of candidates. Um, but, you know, it's what, you know, he had to do back then. He was an underdog, had, didn't have any money, no institutional support to speak of. So um, he... The other thing we talked about that is, I think, important uh, in relation to his presidential campaigns was his desire to build a grassroots campaign, um, the kind of politics. You know, he's a former community organizer, so he said, I, I really want to make sure that volunteers are front and center of my U.S. Senate campaign. I don't think I can win without them, but more importantly, that's the kind of campaign I want to run. So, you know, that was true in that race, and that was true in both of his presidential campaigns. That just infuses his view of politics. It sure does. So I've got some questions about your new book, which is A Citizen's Guide. Um, what do you believe that individual resistors must do to best defend against online misinformation and make sure that factual content e- eclipses the flood of disinformation uh, in our social media networks today? 
Well, it's a great question. It's probably the thing I struggled with most with the book, but I think everyone's got to get back online. A lot of people, understandably, um, you know, got rid of their social media accounts, at least through this election, you got to get back on because that's where the fight's taking place uh, day in and day out. So I'd say this, you know, first of all, we have to share positive content, why we're excited about our candidate, their plans, how it'll affect life. Uh, we we all are our own storytellers. I think sometimes we wait for uh, it to happen on, from on high. But when we see disinformation, as frustrating as it can be, we, you can't let it sit. So let's just talk about the last 72 hours. We're talking uh, on Friday the 13th, um, ironically. And, um, yeah, you know, right. Trump's lying about this is all Obama's fault to, fault to coronavirus and everyone's getting a test that needs one, both flat out lies. Uh, just a couple nights ago, he tweeted, um, if the Democrats win the White House, they'll make you get rid of your cars, which again is just a flat out lie. So when you see that, if your aunt Ivanka or Uncle Jared are posting that, you know, um, it's tempting to say, no one's going to believe that, but, you know, spend five seconds saying that's just a flat out lie. Find a piece of content um, that pushes back on that. Lots of conservative content, by the way, have. And it doesn't mean you're going to change their mind. But I tell you what it does. It sends a signal to everybody else how they need to engage. So I think we, we learn in 16 a lot of the things we thought people wouldn't believe they do. And listen, this isn't just Moscow. You know, Trump is, I'm sure, the core of his campaign argument uh, for the closing months of the campaign. Let's say Joe Biden's the nominee. Joe Biden, uh, if he's president, you won't be able to eat steak or hamburger. Uh, you'll have to get rid of your car. Uh, there'll be no borders. Uh, rapists and murderers will be let out of jail. Um, your taxes are going to go up five times if you're a teacher uh, or a nurse. I mean, on and on. And he'll also, you know, lie to constituency groups. He'll tell Latinos that Biden doesn't believe in immigration reform, right? And he'll he'll tell African American groups, um, you know, that Biden um, is somebody they can't trust for whatever reason. So. You're going to see all this stuff, and I don't think that's all you should do because we've got to put out positive messages and the arguments against Trump that we know will be effective. But if you see a piece of disinformation, just take a few seconds and and fire back. Well, following up on that, your book talks about how time is more valuable than money. How does that translate into guiding the actions of millions of motivated Democrats across America during the 2020 campaign? Following up on what you just said, just taking the time to contradict some of the misinformation. But what are some of the other things that people really need to focus on because there's a finite amount of time between now and November? Right. So the easiest thing for people to do, and it's still very important, is to contribute. So our nominee is going to need money. So if you've got the ability to do that, part of what you should be doing now, in my view, is saying, okay, how much can we afford to give? And decide if you're going to give that right away or over a series of months. But that is just really the start, because it is for most people, uh, time is, is, is even more a precious commodity. And so make a plan. I think now's the time to talk to your family. Um, if you live in a battleground state, um, are you or one of your family members going to become a volunteer leader, kind of leading the local effort? Whether you're in a battleground state or not, um, do you do you want to write postcards? Do you want to make phone calls? What's our plan for social media like we just talked about? If you don't live in a battleground state and you think you can get the one, um, when are you going to do that? Like now is the time to really come up with a plan. And that that's formally volunteering. Uh, the other thing I really stress in my book is we can make a big impact just going about our daily lives, interacting with people, um, you know, checking to make sure everybody in our networks are registered at the right address. If you're in a state that allows you to vote early, please encourage everybody to vote early because I can't tell you how many times I talk to people where something happens on election day and they couldn't get to the polls, vote early. It also frees people up to volunteer. So, um, you know, I would encourage you before you just launch into a bunch of activities, now's a good time. We're all going to be spending more time together at home uh, than we'd like, than we plan for over the next few weeks. What's our plan? 
what are we going to do? No, no, no. This is a perfect time for people to plan what they're going to do for the next six to nine months. Once the uh, cancel everything is canceled. There's one other uh, thing you didn't mention there, and it's kind of important in politics, at least certainly locally here in South Florida, but it's vote by mail. What do you think about vote by mail efforts and efforts to get more people to get ballots at home? No, well, I did mention early voting, which, you know, in some places is in person, in some places by mail, in some states it's both like Florida. So that's critical. So one, something can happen to anybody on election day, but let's talk about South Florida and Florida generally. We're not going to win Florida without a really great turnout amongst people who don't have voting history, young voters, folks who aren't regular voters. Those are the people you want to have vote early. You want to get that vote in the bank because it's most at risk if it lasts to election day. And then for everybody who's engaged in the campaign, um, I know I certainly love going to polling locations, but um, if you can spend all your day on election day doing GOTV calls and door knocking, you should do that. So it frees people up. So um, I was just in Pennsylvania, by the way, where they have vote by mail for the first time. Um, and it's having run campaigns in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's such an asset to have that as a weapon, you know, as a, as a way for people to to get their vote in the bank. The other thing about that for campaigns is, Obviously, they can't see the actual ballot, but there's reports every day about who returned their mail ballot. So campaigns get a sense of where they're doing well, where they're not. Uh, I was never interested in the let's talk about Florida, where I studied those numbers every day, you know, in both Obama campaigns. It wasn't the raw number of votes coming in. It's like, who were they? You know, so if I say Greg is somebody that hadn't voted in the last two elections and we knew if he voted, he'd vote for Obama, but we were concerned he wouldn't vote. Like, that's awesome. That's what we want to see. So it's also really great intelligence for the campaigns because they can see where they're doing well, where they're not, and they can make adjustments. Well, it's interesting that you focus on turnout over other measures, like just turning these people out is really the biggest problem. Well, it's both. So I, I write about this in the book. I mean, if you live in Florida... You know, they're, they're, the Cuban vote, for the most part, is a swing, meaning truly folks who there's a decent chunk of voters who, you know, they could go one way or the other. You've obviously got all the suburban oh, voters true. in the I-4 uh, corridor in Florida. Uh, you know, Rick Scott in particular did really well uh, in the Puerto Rican community. So uh, and we've got to get Trump's numbers in the panhandle down a little bit. Um, he's going to win them, but we got to get them down. So, so it's a Florida is all the things. Uh, Florida is a good example. There's a lot of persuadable voters, and we got to find them, and we got to get them on our side. There's people who are going to think about voting third party who say, "I can't vote Trump, but I'm not sure I want to vote Democrat." We got to, you know, keep that number down. Then there's people we got to register and people we got to turn out. So, the truth is, all of it is equally important. Um, Florida is such a big state, and I think Trump's going to drive such big turnout on his behalf. That to get, you know, we might need to get 5 million, 5 million, 200,000 votes to be Trump, which is a big number in Florida. You got to put all that together. So let's switch gears from the grassroots and from the turnout uh, operations and, you know, to the ground game and discuss the political picture in this year's campaign. How do you see President Obama's role unfolding in the general election? When does he endorse and what do you think he does? Right. Well, I think he's 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 approached this properly, which is not to put a thumb on the scale. And I think he'll endorse or support once we know who our nominee is. Right. And 
maybe that goes all the way to June. My, my guess is it's going to be so clear after next Tuesday, where I think Joe Biden will do exceedingly well in your state and, and the other three, that his delegate lead is so large that, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders decides it's time to get out. Then I think Barack Obama and Michelle Obama uh, will get involved and do anything, everything and anything Joe Biden and his campaign asked them to do. Um, so they'll be campaigning a lot. They'll be doing social media, and that's helpful. Um, but again, I think, uh, you know, if if Barack Obama spent his entire, you know, let's say he went to Florida once a week, uh, you know, for the next seven months, um, but we had two million people in Florida who were really active in the campaign. The latter is more important. That's no disrespect to my former boss. It's just, you know, a neighbor talking to a neighbor, a cousin talking to a cousin. Um, that is such powerful currency in politics. So Barack Obama, I think, can get people excited. Um, I think he can really drive a compelling messages about the stakes of this election. So can Michelle Obama. So that's great. And they reach a lot of people. Um, but they need to do that in partnership with the average person on the ground. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. So if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, what do you think of his chances for defeating Donald Trump in the 2020 general election? Well, you know, it's early, right? So I'd start with where is the election going to take place? What are the battleground states? And I do think if you're right. Biden, you do try and win Florida. Um, Florida is a would be a checkmate on Trump. It's just a backbreaker. So I think you got to go all in in Florida, all in in North Carolina, all in in Arizona. And then, of course, you've got to try and win back Wisconsin Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, Georgia could be a battleground state. We'll see. Listen, if we go into a significant recession, which none of us hope, you know, then states like Ohio and Iowa come back into play, maybe even Texas. But I think the core six uh, are Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I hope Georgia's part of that too. So, um, you know, uh, Biden wouldn't have to win all of those. Um, I think the two right now, based on polling, and it could be wrong, that seem to be the most likely to get taken back from the evil empire are Pennsylvania and Michigan. And so the thing to remember, if Biden does that and the rest of the map from 16 stays constant, he's at 268 electoral votes, so he's short. So that's why Wisconsin, so Arizona. So he just needs one more state. He just needs that, one. Right. But you want to put all those in place. So I think Biden, listen, he doesn't have that generational contrast with Trump, obviously. But what he does have is a contrast in terms of empathy uh, and kindness uh, and normalcy and calmness during crisis. So um, I, I think Biden's stock is being undervalued right now. The other thing about Biden is, you know, we need him. I'd like to see him perform better. And that's why the debate this Sunday with Bernie, I think, is important. But, you know, he doesn't talk all the time like a typical Washington politician. And I think he should embrace that. You know, I mean, it's one of Trump's strengths. Voters, uh, you know, um, I think like that. So Biden should say, yeah, right. I've been in Washington a long time, but I've never really spoken like Washington. I've always spoken like someone from Scranton. And that's because that's, you know, who I am and who I'm going to fight for. So I think that's important. Um, the biggest concern if, if you're Biden, and I think this would even be true with Bernie, is young turnout. 
So even as well as Bernie's doing with support levels and he's winning young people overwhelmingly, um, and we're going to need him and his campaign deeply involved in, in this effort, but the turnout's not huge. And that's always hard to do. So that to me is sort of the Manhattan Project for the Biden campaign and our nominee and in and, and, and our party is how can we get young turnout? And as hard as it is, we've seen it happen recently. 2018, historic turnout amongst young people in the off-year elections. Other uh, congressional elections. Well, that is that is a big issue for the Sanders campaign in that they're still winning a very high share of the younger vote, but there's less younger vote turnout during these primaries than in 2016. So how do we reverse that in November? I mean, what specific steps, like if there was a top three, what do you think those top three would be? Well, first of all, invest in it. So have a lot of field organizers and a lot of your digital spend aimed at young people. Um, I think Biden and Sanders and Obama's, the people who are doing a lot of events should be doing a lot of them aimed at young people. Um, you know, really lift up the voices. The most likely reason a young person is to vote and get involved is another young people, young person talk to them, right? So make sure that we are uh, doing all we can. But it's hard. I mean, this is hard. I mean, it was hard when Barack Obama did it and he had natural support with young people. So this is where I would overinvest, overthink, overstrategize. Um, and it's not one thing, but it's not just going to happen. Like this is where you're going to have to invest serious effort, time, thought, resources, uh, put a lot of, you know, try and activate a lot of YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers and people who have credibility with young people. But again, the most likely reason a 19-year-old is to vote who wasn't sure they're going to vote or register is, you know, their 19-year-old friend or cousin says, come on, man, you got to do this. And, you know, that's just what it's going to come down to. So um, there has to be, I think, an overemphasis on young people in this campaign. Well, we've got like one minute left. Is there something from the book that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about yet in this uh, interview? Well, thanks for that, Greg. I think it's more that the spirit is more important than the specifics, that I think you have to understand your power to influence this election. Um, you know, let's say, let's say you, through your efforts, you're only confident at the end, and I think it'll be a lot more than this, but let's say, I really think there's only five people, <laughs> you know, that I really got to vote, uh, or decided to vote for our nominee who are undecided. Uh, that's there, I, I'm only positive about five. Like, I think I had more impact, but I only had five. Well, listen, if only 2 million more people in America can say the same thing come election, and that's 10 million people. Uh, that's enough to produce not a win, but a landslide. So you have power. Um, you can't wait for, um, you know, the cavalry to arrive. You are the cavalry. Um, and, you know, this is kind of the time for patriots and freedom fighters and people who want to save the republic and the world to get involved. And I would just ask people to keep in mind, as bad as you all felt the night of November 8th, 2016, when Trump won in that big surprise black swan event, um, think how bad it's going to be if it's ratified. If on that night he strides out uh, to his ballroom there in Mar-a-Lago near you uh, with his grifter family and Sean Hannity in tow and says, thanks, America, for a second term. Um, you know, that is going to be such a devastating night. So keep that in mind. And, and you have more power than you realize, even though it can seem small. Just think about your own effort in the aggregate. And if enough people are doing enough smart things and are dogged about it, um, we can win this election. Well, David, thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me and everybody stay safe down there in Florida. I want to thank David Pluff for taking the time. I want to thank Grant Stern for doing the interview. You can follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter. You can visit our website for a book series on presidential candidates. 
at meetthecandidates2020.com. You can visit our website at dworkinreport.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!